We're about to get into the weeds. Get rid of them, probably. Not just of gardening, but the architecture of our gardens. So be sure to text your questions through to 2101 or email us 9 to noon at rnz.co.nz. Years of research have shown the health benefits gained from gardening. The activity increases mobility and aerobic fitness while reducing waistlines and the risk of dementia, heart disease and type 2 diabetes. What's not to love? But the positive effects go beyond the acts of planting, weeding and mowing. Forest bathing is a Japanese practice of just immersing oneself in nature and is improved to, uh, linked to improved mental health. It's simple. Green spaces, gardens are good for us. But it turns out not all gardens are created equal. Dr Gail Suter-Brown is a landscape architect, founder of Greenstone Design, a salutogenic design specialist. Her latest research examines the relationship between mental well-being and green spaces. She's just returned from Qatar, I think. Gail, nice to talk. How are you? Uh, good morning. Thank you for inviting me to be on the show. Yeah, it, it was Qatar. Um, hadn't been to Qatar before, so uh, a whole new part of the world to um, to think about what to grow, how to grow it. The theme of the conference I was uh, uh, presenting at was greening the desert. So trying to create a livable space in an arid climate uh, in the space of chi- climate change. So, yeah, really challenging, really fascinating. Salutogenic design is what, please? Uh, very good question to start with. It's all about health promotion. So pathogenic healthcare treats an illness. So once you are ill, once you're sick, the pathogens, the germs get treated and, and then you are, are you know, sort of on the journey back towards wellness again. So salutogenesis was a term coined by Aaron Antonovsky. And he said, wouldn't it be so much better to do what we can to keep people well? And so it's health promotion. It's that searching for the origins of health rather than the origins of disease. That's and so that, that, that is what we've sort of aimed to do in terms of my research and practice with creating spaces that promote health and well-being, that support well-being. It sounds very recent to a recent uh, interview with an architect, I'm going to name him. He's Toronto-based Ty Farrow. And from the physical built environment, he takes very much the same approach. He's designed spaces and hospitals, including green spaces, by the way. So it's this idea that our environment has a preventative, unquestionably, a preventative or an exacerbating impact on us. Absolutely. And both of those comments are are really relevant here. So that exacerbating, if you're a bit stressed and you go into an environment that's not supportive, it will make you worse. And that that was one of the the fascinating sort of side uh, interests from my research was uh, nobody had ever sort of looked really at the effects of the standard, if you will, um, sort of green space that we provide in our urban centres that, well, you know, in schools and and workplaces that are predominantly hard paved, that have those sort of architectural elements, the trees in straight rows, the seating in straight rows. And, yeah, that that we found did measurable harm. It was really interesting, very much qualitatively what the, um, the research participants were telling us rather than significant hard data quantitatively, but qualitatively, all the 
the measures that we were looking at, all the outcomes, um, yeah. Tell us more about that research, Gail, because I understand you also also had different groups, and one group was assigned to a sort of a plaza-style experience, if you like. Just explain how you set that research up. Um, Well, it was out of frustration, really, that there had been a lot of research around the world about the what we intuitively know, that um, we feel better when we are outdoors in nature. When we are in a a beautiful garden space, we feel good. And that sort of sense of happy place. But people weren't acting on that information. We were still putting in fake grass. We were still doing all sorts of, of, um, yeah, urban design type sort of idea developments that, that did not accept that we need nature around us. So I thought, okay, a randomized control trial is the gold standard of medical research. And so like trialing a new drug, in this instance, I was trialing vitamin N for nature, I suppose. Um, So two intervention groups, one control group. So the control group go about life as normal. And so they you can then compare back to when you were looking at, at any changes in your data set. And so the two intervention groups, um, one group, as you mentioned, um, spent time, 30 minutes once a week was the, the intervention period that, that we used. And that was based by a team um, based out of the UK, quantified the minimum dose of nature required for human health and well-being at 30 minutes once a week. So that's the minimum that we need. So I said, righto, that's got to be an easily achievable amount. So 30 minutes once a week, people um, were either allocated it into the group that went into the plaza environment, which was, as I was describing, that fixed rows of seating, fixed trees. Um, the trees are often movable. Um, or a sensory garden that I designed. In the same um, size, space, same orientation. And on the university campus at, at AUT University on their north campus, And so people were allowed to do whatever they liked in the space. They could read, they could eat, they could chat with friends, they could walk around, they could go and explore. The only thing they weren't allowed to do was use digital devices, which just meant that they were spending time mentally in the space as well as physically, that they weren't sort of distracted and and thinking about shopping lists and what to have for dinner or, or work concerns or whatever else in that sort of digital way. And so... After a four-week-long intervention, um, we tested them again. So we tested them before the intervention, all groups, including the control, and then afterwards. And we tested their salivary cortisol as a physiological marker of their chronic stress levels. And we also um, went through validated scales for their perceived stress, perceived well-being, their productivity, um, nature-relatedness, how interested they were in um, conservation-related uh, areas of life and their lifestyle, so their physical activity, diet, their sociability, their ability to problem-solve. And so what we found was that we had statistically uh, significant results, so that means that they stacked up statistically. Um they were clinically significant in that these results are useful for clinical practice. And I was talking to a neurolo- 
neurologist uh, a couple of weeks ago who said, we need this information in our practice. Um, and socially significant also. So an almost 20% reduction in salivary cortisol. When you spend time in a, uh, let's call it a, a normal park or garden, um, all the studies have shown to date that you achieve about a 5% reduction in your salivary cortisol. So, so what by, was so special about your sensory garden? What was in there that achieved higher a, a higher impact? Good question. So it's a very much a concentrated experience of nature where sensory gardens of old were designed, developed as gardens for the blind, as somewhere that would stimulate the, the other senses when sight was removed. So I took that basic premise that said, what can we do to stimulate the senses and applied that to people without those diagnoses, the apparently well, and said, okay, what can we do? Because we know it works for anybody with any sort of additional need, whether it's children with special needs um, or adults with dementia or anybody in between. But what would it do for the 95% without that extra diagnosis? And it's very much having biodiversity, that that being rich in species that has planting that attracts in the butterflies, that attracts in the birds, that starts, in fact, with a healthy soil, that has water, whether it's running or still water, so that you're then going to um, attract, retain a different variety of animal life, the insect life, the dragonflies, the water boatmen, the, the fish, um, depending on the, the sort of water that you've got, that just bring that space literally and figuratively to life. How big and was it? How, how big it. does it need to be? Do you need to feel like you're enveloped? Um, so yes to the being enveloped, no to the, the needing to be big. So the space that we had to use was 900 square metres. And it was interesting, while I was doing my research, I had a, a, um, a Danish landscape architect out on a, uh, a study exchange. And he had done a similar, but different, um, study in Denmark where, in fact, they had um, a much smaller space. It was about 30 square metres and saw an effect in 30 square metres. So you don't need a big space, but that sense of enclosure is important. And so with that, you get um, what psychologists call a sense of being away, that whole retreat, that refuge, that feeling of safety, if you will. And so they were there in the middle of the busy university campus, but in the sensory garden, some people fell asleep and they felt safe enough to sleep. And it's a very vulnerable state that you put yourself in if you just relax and go to sleep in a public space. And it was extraordinary to see how people responded to the experience of being in the sensory garden. You know, one of the participants um, told me one day that she came in really um, uptight, upset. She'd had a really tough morning and she decompressed almost instantly where she just felt at ease. And then that effect lasted um, so that she went on um, after the, the session in the sensory garden to be more effective for the rest of the afternoon, went home, had a pleasant evening with housemates, ate more mindfully, drank less alcohol. Some participants took themselves off long-term um, antidepressants after only 30 minutes once a week for four weeks. So the effects were really profound. 
was fascinating. Gail Susan Brown, our guest. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. She is, uh, as we said, a landscape architect, founder of Greenstone Design. You're listening to Nine to Noon. It's 22 and a half minutes past 10. What are the the implications then for designing our cities and towns or indeed our, uh, our, our buildings, some of our larger building complexes, apartment blocks, for example, how complex would it be to incorporate a garden of the kind that has an impact? As you say, if you can move the tree, <laughs> it's probably not going to have the same effect. That speaks to me of a shopping mall with some, you know, fake fakies in there or something. Um, but what would be the practical implications of using this scale? So what we've done is we've applied the research across the design practice across the world into all sorts of different settings. So into children's centres, into uh, international schools, um, aged care facilities, eco-resorts, children's hospitals, um, dementia care, all sorts of settings. So it's not hard to think in terms of how can we create a connection with nature in this space. As you say, whether it's an apartment block or whatever, what we do need is to have opening windows. What we do need is to have a green view. So ideally you'd have at least a balcony in your housing development. Um, When we look at at European um, density of housing, there are balconies, there are opening windows, and there are central courtyards, communal spaces that are welcoming, attractive spaces that work on the principles of providing that sense of refuge. A lot of them don't have the, the full um, understanding in terms of how to create that immersive, nature-rich experience. But since the pandemic, our clients have found a greater need to connect with nature. And so they're looking for that extra sense of security, knowing that outdoors, the air quality is much more healthy. And so creating those spaces, um, yeah, there there is an increased awareness of the need for and and the demand to back that up. Well, let's talk about so, let's talk about the courtyard space because the quarter acre dream, yeah. of course, is no more for many people, and and many people will be living in urban areas. Um, courtyard spaces, and an interesting possibility there is the use of vertical walls. Now, now, can this work if you want to create a surround sound of nature, right, visually? And, and and not sort of necessarily clutter up with a whole bunch of um, of pots and plantings. Can can you seriously replicate it, even in an environment where you may not be growing? There may not be roots in the ground, for example. The short answer is yes, you can, um, and it, it becomes a question of effect size. And so, um, in an airport, for example, um, in some places. In actual fact, you do have movable uh, trees, back to that, that um, uh, little uh, comment, that um, sense that they can be picked up and moved, you know, whether by a forklift or whatever, um, but they are in, in containers. So you can create the effect without having plants in the ground um, 
Are there ways of doing that? I'm thinking even of things like moss. Like if you're in, in, in the, one of the things I associate with being genuinely out in a forest would be sort of mossy roots <coughs> and that smell and the undergrowth and all of that. Um, does it sound too wacky to try and replicate some of that randomness of, of, a, of a natural green space in, in your own courtyard? They can get terribly clever with very dense green walls these days. Absolutely. And so the short answer is yes. And so when you're talking about your mosses, what you're talking about in the forest is you've got that layered planting. So you've got trees, you've got shrubs, you've got the sub shrubs, and then you've got the mosses. And that is really in the, the sensory garden, that concentrated nature experience. That's what we're trying to create. That sense that you've got that little bit of wild that it's not all controlled. It's nature doing its own thing, which then is a metaphor for life. Because mm. as much as we like to think we're in control, we're not. Um, and every now and then something will come along just to sort of knock you off your, your course and you think, oh, um, how do I respond to this? When you have nature allowed to do its exuberant thing around you, including mosses, including trees, including ferns and, and colour and fruit and fragrance, that is that metaphor for, well, it is not just the metaphor, but it is that real life that, that comes and goes, that life, death and decay that make us into those sort of resilient people that, that everybody aspires to be. Well, the other thing about about nature in that respect is that it's gnarly and old and wrinkly and it grows over each other and it's interdependence and there is symbiosis and there are parasites and there are all these things that again when that is seen as being part of a normally normal healthy ecosystem again we can we can make the parallels in our lives can we talk about one or two of your special projects that you've done over the years um Design first and the idea of the ambulance being at the, the top of the cliff, if you like. The prevention, the good health rather than trying to repair. Uh, let's look at some of them. What was the playground, for example, for a primary school in Russia? How did that project come about? Uh, well, that was, a, a um, as most projects are, a design competition whereby you bid for a project. Um, and so we bid and we, we won that project. Um, I was living in Wellington at the time and designed a playground at the Anglo-American International School in Moscow. Um, It was at the time America's uh, most prestigious international school around the world. And the children go outside every day unless it is the temperature goes below minus 19. The playground is under snow for five months of the year. So there were challenges that we hadn't dealt with before. And so the, the concept design was done remotely completely. And then I went over. So all the, the, um, the site measurements, the, the architectural um, site plans were sent over by the Russian architects. And then I went over to, um, to physically meet the clients for the first time and check uh, all the, the details, dimensions on the ground. At which point we realized that, that some of the, the measurements weren't quite as accurate as we'd hoped. We had to make some modifications on the way, but. The basic principle was, as with everything that we've been talking about, reconnecting the children back with nature. And we always like to talk with clients, the happy clients and the not-so-happy clients. 
And so we had a, a workshop for the teachers and we said, right, what would you like from the space for the children? And most of the staff turned up and it was in their lunch hour to make it you know, sort of easy for them to get to this meeting. And two grumpy teachers did not. And I went and saw them afterwards and said, hi, um, excuse me, sorry for interrupting and all that sort of thing. Uh, I noticed that you weren't there. Why not? And one said to me, well, I think it's a waste of time. We need more books in the library. We don't need children outside because it's not light till 11 o'clock in the morning. And so, you know, they can't see to do anything anyway. And that was that light bulb moment that I needed to think I hadn't thought about daylight. And so what we did with that nugget of information from what was the negative person who became our best advocate for the new playground afterwards was we created that magical fairyland and put fairy lights. So I planted, well, we were going to have trees in the design anyway, but made sure that we used them almost as um, lamp posts. And so in the winter, when they're bare of their leaves, with all the fairy lights wrapped around them, they were in this magical space that then lit up the playground before 11am when it became light until 2pm when it got dark again. So that it was just this magical space. So in the summertime, the children had access to soil and they sat and they played in the soil and, you know, all the, the science nerds. And then the, and they had something that attracted them, engaged them. And then the others had a big um, mound that they could roll down in the wintertime when it was covered in snow um, or clamber up and over and through. And uh, it was about multiple ways of providing that nature connection for their health and well-being. Because at that particular school, um, I worked in many schools where uh, the children go to school with their nanny rather than their parents, um, as in they're dropped off in the morning. But at this um, school, they were dropped off by their bodyguards. And so these were very um, high-functioning families that the children had come from. And with that, high stress levels. And so to reduce anxiety and stress so that the children could perform to the best of their ability in the classroom, everything that we did outdoors was about reducing those stress levels. And so, yeah, that's what how we ap applied the research as it were there um, in this very nature-rich space in a really challenging environment. So, yeah, it was a fun project. Uh, just, I, I'm sorry to do this succinctly. I think we may have talked about it in an earlier interview, though, Gail. Um, Burwood Hospital is another area where you um, have been involved in projects and breakout spaces, and uh, and you brought your own personal experience of the value of these environments to recovery, grieving, psychological stress, Gail, uh, fr from that as well. Indeed, I. Um... I'll say I was fortunate enough, my husband may not agree, to break my back on a horse riding accident and my arm um, in 2004. And I'm fortunate that I can now walk again. Um, but it really informed the way I approach space and sense space, that feeling that you get um, cambers in a, a, on a footpath um, become unbearable to walk on when they're too steep and you know some drainage engineer has said right we need to get the runoff right but actually we can do that much more gently so that was sort of the start point in terms of my personal experience um but then translating that into uh Burwood hospital i appeared 
peer review the plans there. And just looking at those those healing courtyards for people who had been through stroke, through spinal cord injury, um, to support them back towards wellness. But not only the patients, but also the staff and the visiting families. And so what we've done a lot of um, staff burnout in the healthcare system is now rampant right around the world. And so what we're doing is not only supporting the the patient journey back to recovery to reduce their hospital stay um, as much as possible, but also to support the staff. The staff, yeah. Yummy, Gail. Yeah. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Gail Suter-Brown.